I want to talk. I've been thinking about you and me. About how this is going to end. About who will end up killing who. <laughs> Perhaps you'll kill me. Perhaps I'll kill you. You know that, don't you? <laughs> Tell me what I'm doing here! You're going mad. Where is he? <laughs> Why aren't you laughing? All it takes is one bad day. Shama people, and welcome to our 172nd episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast. We discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, and more. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I am one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always joining me is my podcasting partner in crime, Mr. Keith Bliss. Hey, Keith, how's life treating you today? Well, you know, not too bad. I live at the beach. It's a sunny-ish day, and it's almost Christmas, so all's well in the hood. Fantastic. And Keith, to see 2022 off, we are not alone as we have not one, but two guest co-hosts today. On one hand, returning to the podcast, we have Mr. John Seymour. Hey, John, how are you? And welcome back. I'm, I'm great. Thank you so much. And Keith, I'm, I, I'm glad that you changed that introduction just for me. I, I, I like I, to think I that was just for me. Yeah. That's, so, so something, something different to hear. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> it's all your fault. Yes. Nice. <laughs> Fantastic. And of course, on the other, making his debut on the podcast is Mr. Ken Radner. Hey, Ken, how are you? And welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I am doing well, and I'm looking forward to thoroughly ruining any of your fan base. <laughs> <laughs> if Fantastic. I haven't done it already, I don't think you have a problem. <laughs> no, Ken, Ken's, Ken's already, he's already ruined my fan base, so I just have him on the show all the time now. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, it definitely sounds it's going to be like it's going to be quite the lively discussion because today, gentlemen, we are discussing Batman the Killing Joke from 2016. This was directed by Sam Liu. The film was written by Brian Azzarello and is, of course, based on the Alan Moore, Brian Bolland graphic novel from 1988 by the same name. While the score was by Christopher Carter, Michael McQuistian and Lolita Ritmanis. And to put it in today's money, adjusted for inflation, this movie cost $4 million to make and made $5 million at the box office. So I guess here we can start with general impressions. Uh, John, starting actually with you as one of our guests, what did you make of Batman the Killing Joke? So whenever I can, if I have the time or the access, I always like to read like the original, if there is an original. So this was obviously based on a comic, as you said. And so I read the comic and I watched the movie and I was intrigued to say the least that there was like an extra half hour of story in the beginning that to me, I mean, I thought that it was going to go in a different direction. I was like, okay, what's going on here? What, what's this all about? And I thought that they just had an extra story that they were going to add in. It seemed to be just like there to introduce Barbara a little bit more and to add a little bit extra time to the movie. Um, the movie overall, once it got started in the, you know, the, the, the story of the comic was much more entertaining. I 
to be honest, did not understand that subplot of uh, Batman and Barbara having sex on the rooftop. I ran like, okay, that that mm-hmm. happened for no reason and it went nowhere. So, okay, yeah, great. I'm glad you did that. Um, other than that, though, that movie was really good. And, I mean, it could have been a 45-minute movie. They wanted to make it a feature length, so they added the extra stuff. Um, the whole idea of the Joker proving a point, paralyzing Barbara and making uh, uh, Commissioner Gordon, like, you know, kidnapping him, having him go around with those weird midget things while he was like naked and like forcing him on these, the freaky roller coaster ride to make him go mad and then not do things by the book. It was, uh, it was interesting because he didn't he didn't budge he didn't move and to to commissioner i mean yeah to commissioner to commissioner gordon's credit he did not move uh everything leading up to that the joker with his song and dance which i was surprised that i you know so i actually saw the movie i knew it was a comic i had seen some like read some of the comic i i got into the book after i saw the movie um I thought to myself, there's no way that this song is actually in the comic. And I looked, I found that place and lo and behold, there it was. There it was. And he was like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's pretty much note for note. As soon as the first half half hour was over, Uh, my overall impression, I thought it was a very well done story. It was, you know, Mark Hamill was brilliant as the Joker. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's my take. Fantastic stuff. And uh, Ken, what did you make of this one? Well, I come from kind of an opposite direction as where John came from. So I bought the, I bought the graphic novel back in 1988. So and it was uh, that was the the primary time when the comic universes got dark like that mm. was. And then that became a thing for like the next 15 years. At least, I mean, I know it went well into the '90s, and they, it's. I mean, even sometimes even carries over into some of the stuff today. Um, so it was a really um, pivotal kind of moment in comic book history because it, it influenced so much that comes after it, which is why um, even when you when you look at the comic very critically, it's there's not a whole lot to it. It's pretty short. And like you said, it could have been a 45 minute movie. I think the book was only like 60 or 70 pages long. I think maybe 75. Like it was really short. I think 60. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was like really, really short. And uh, like I said, it was great and groundbreaking. But then the thing is looking at it from that critical view years later, Alan Moore and Brian Boland, the guys that wrote it said that they really weren't that fond of it. (laughs) <laughs> because they said they said not a whole lot happens. They go, there's one you know main plot with the Joker and Batman, and then the Joker's plan, and then everything else after that was was kind of like you know a couple of minor things. Um, and the movie, when I heard that they were going to do a Killing Joke movie, I was like, wow, this, this is fantastic. I mean, what else could you wish for? It was like one of the greatest comic books of you know my adolescence. Now to have it made into a movie. And because I know that when DC makes 
animated movies, they usually always knock it out of the park. Like Marvel, and it's like reversed for live action. So DC's live action movies, you know, sometimes they're good. Sometimes they falter. Marvel movies are usually always fantastic, but then their animated stuff is really not, like there's there's a few that are really good, um, but uh, they don't really compare much to the DC versions. Um, so when I heard the movie was coming out, that was great. Then when I heard it was going to be R-rated, I was like, oh, no, there's no way they can do that. And then when I heard it was going to be Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill, I, I was like, this is this is ridiculous. So unfortunately, I went into this with such high expectations. Like I was like, this is going to be one of the best, not even animated movies, just one of the best movies I've ever seen. And then, uh, you know, you get you get. Bruce and Barbara getting down and I'm like, what, what are you guys doing? Cause I mean, to me, that seemed like that sort of violated kind of like a basic tenant. I mean, they had in the comics, they always had, it was a very close relationship, but it was more like a, like a mentor or a fatherly thing, you know? So mm -hmm. seeing that I was like, that doesn't sound right. I go, I think it, it might've worked better if like, if like she and, and Dick Grayson, because they're, you know, more appropriate age and you know that sort of thing and then that could have brought him in but then you bring him in now it's not killing joke anymore so i agree with john they were trying to flesh out the story a little bit build a little bit more time um i love that they did it in the uh batman animated series style of animation um that was that was really nice and um you know there was there was just uh there was a lot about it to to really like you know so um that's uh you know my basic uh, analysis great stuff and uh, mr bliss what did you make of uh, what are your general impressions on this one it, it i'm kind of a between both worlds it was very well done the cast was amazing it they took it from a story from the 80s so it hasn't really necessarily aged very well and to look back it was only like and i just I had to look it up it's 48 pages so it's almost like a not even a graphic novel, but just an extra long issue, like a deluxe edition. So I, I get the point of some of this stuff. I did like the origin. They kind of flushed out more of the origin of the Joker with this, where 99% of the time you see these Batmans, it's always Batman origin of, you know, the 87th time. Now it's really kind of flushing out more of the Joker backstory. Um, past that, it was very dry. The, the cast did very well. I did remind me of the animated series from the 90s. I enjoyed it, but yes, it could have definitely been like 20 minutes shorter and would have had the same impact. They could have cut out a little bit more of the fluff with Barbara, just for the sheer fact that when you first meet her, I didn't like her for the first, I don't know, half an hour of the movie. And then when she finally quits, she becomes more of a an interesting character per se, because now she's, you know, back to the home life and it's normal her. The, the whole going from her nightlife to day life and her in the library talking to her best friend about this guy she likes and you're like but i don't see the attraction i don't feel the tension between the two of them and there's this awkward love scene and you're like well at that i feel dirty now <laughs> and then it just kind of like all right we're not going to talk about this and you know just keep moving and then stuff goes sideways 
Well, uh, great points. And you know what? I, I, I kind of agree. I'm not going to fault Tara Strong, who I think always does a great job voice work wise. No, no surprise. She pretty much voices every and any animated character when it comes to either DC or Marvel. But I will say this, I mean, you know, to everybody's points here, I, I, you know, especially Ken brought this up. You know, you're coming into this from a no graphic novel in inverted commas from the 80s, where the violence is up to a million and it would obviously uh, progress into the 90s. And that's when, of course, we had the famous incident known as fridging. And uh, of course, if our listeners are not familiar with that term, fridging comes from Green Lantern issue 54 from 94, where Kyle Rayner, the current Green Lantern, his girlfriend, Alexandra DeWitt, is killed by Major Force, one of his enemies, and is left in the freeze in the fridge for him to find. And it seemed to be a long tendency throughout comics both, I think more DC than Marvel, but I could be wrong, but it seemed to be more of a DC trend where it was the women being sacrificed or the love interests or just female characters being sacrificed in order to give our heroes something to do, to be the impetus for them to do something. And what I think the probably the initial thought process when it came to the way Liu and Azzarello handled the source material was... It was, it's kind of the, the way Barbara Gordon was treated in the graphic novel comes a little bit across as fridging. Let's try and give her more of a story and try and give, you know, this character more than just being a female sacrifice. The problem is they fail miserably when it comes <laughs> to, I see what they're trying to do, but it does not work. And I'm, I'm just like Ken, when I heard this was being made into a movie, I wasn't able to see it in the theaters, but I immediately bought the Blu-ray I saw it once and that was it because I was just so upset with, with the way it was handled. I see there were good intentions when it came to, as I said, with Azzarello and Liu handling the story, but the story doesn't really kick in till 30 minutes. From 30 minutes onwards, it's the, it's the graphic novel pretty much bit by bit when it comes like to what, word uh, for word. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly what, what yeah. Moore and Boland were doing. And you almost didn't need that. And I will, you know, put more about this when we get to the character to Barbara Gordon, but I was so disappointed in so many ways. I mean, after the, the, the 30 minute mark, it starts to get really good and you're really enjoying it. it really shows, you, you know, pretty much it brings the printed page to life. And I love that. I think the, the actors involved did a great job. I think it's once again, the, the case of the script failed them and it failed them miserably. It was very, very sad for me for that reason. And in fact, I had not watched it since this review which tells you how much I hated this particular version. <laughs> but, but I guess those are the breaks. I think it's more of we're trying to give more of a reason to the female character to be there. So we'll give Batgirl her story, but it doesn't work. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's, I'm just very sad. And, and I guess that's, uh, that, that's the way I feel. So let's start off then looking at our characters by looking at our caped crusader, the man who many consider to be the quintessential voice of the Dark Knight, the late great Kevin Conroy, of course, as Bruce Wayne Batman. So Ken, starting with you, what did you make of our Dark Knight in this one? All right. Well, it's, I mean, look, it, Kevin Conroy has been Batman for what, almost 30 years. I mean, that's when you think of the voice of Batman, it's Kevin Conroy. And uh, he, I mean, he did the same. I mean, I've seen all of the animated series. I've seen most of the movies that he's done. So he always, I mean, it's just, he always does it. He, he is Batman, or he was, unfortunately, Batman. Um, and um, he really, I mean, he, he puts uh, a really great spin on it, just his uh, personality that he puts into him. 
has always been fantastic. Um, making him in this, you know, making him a little bit, you know, darker toward it, a little bit, you know, more tortured and, you know, it, it always makes things a little bit better. And he definitely has the ability to do that. And um, I actually saw this, um, I saw this interview with him. There was actually a, uh, like a video uh, message that he gave to some podcaster. And, and he was saying that how, uh, what he tries, tries to bring forward in Batman. And the thing that's so great about him is first is that he's not a superhero. He's just, he doesn't have any powers. You know, he just happened. He's just very intelligent and well-trained and doesn't hurt to have a ton of money. <laughs> um, but that the main idea with this, which is also one of the main plots of this is that Batman is a flawed person. Like he's damaged. He's been, he's been broken a bit by life. And that the point of Batman is not of him just going around and beating people up, but you can always see, and it happens a lot in the comics that how he'll either get defeated or get, you know, set, you know, metaphorically on a back foot and then how he deals with that and how he attempts to overcome that. Um, and this is, this is definitely one of those, one of those things. And they also, I mean, the, and they also made uh, part of the whole situation with him in there different because he's actually trying to, it's almost like he's actually trying to make a truce with Joker in this, you know, through mm. most of it that he's like, look, he's like, I'm going to, if we keep going at this, the way that we're going at it, one of us is going to die, possibly both. So he's like, how about like, I just try to help you out so that, you know, you know, I can, I can make you, you know, less insane, I guess, or try and rehabilitate you a little bit. And that's, <laughs> and, and Kevin Conroy definitely can bring that sensitivity to it. I mean, he was just, he was so fantastic. And then, uh, you know, I've never been the biggest Bruce Wayne fan. But that's just always because he's supposed to be, I think he's supposed to be a little bit of a foolish character, at least, you know, outwardly, you know, mm. and, you know, because he has to kind of, you know, you can't think that he's Batman. So he has to act totally different. And then once he gets around the people that know him or he gets in his cave or whatever, well, now he's Batman. So, so I, so Bruce Wayne is, is the alter ego, not Batman. And, and Kevin Connery definitely pulls that off. I totally agree. I think, yeah, the beauty of this character is the fact that uh, that the mask is actually Bruce Wayne and Batman is the true persona. So uh, so I, I definitely agree with that. And that's something why I've always been definitely very much drawn to the character of Batman for that, for that particular reason. And Keith, what did you make of what Batman got to do in this one? Uh, the more of these movies I watch, I find a little bit more flaw in the character of Batman he was always pitched as like the world's greatest detective. He's the best of everything he does, but he couldn't figure out what the Joker was going to do, or he didn't, he couldn't read into the Joker. He, he couldn't figure out his, you know, his murder operandi or operandi, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, he just struggled and I get it. He's at that point, you can see how he was talking to Barbara earlier in the movie where he's near that abyss and you see him struggling with either falling into the abyss or, you know, staying on the, the light side of it, as it were. So I'm torn in the fact that like the first 30 minutes just seemed like total throwaway because he's 
being like the overbearing dad to Barbara and, you know, trying to protect her, trying to help her and try to, you know, mentor her and then turns around and sleeps with her. So just kind of defeated all the, a lot of the stuff that he did. And um, then the second half where it really was, you know, the true story where it's him focusing on the, the Joker and him almost coming to terms with the fact that he, something's going to happen. One of them is going to kill the other one or they're both going to die. It was kind of refreshing in respect that, you know, Batman always walks in the room and everybody freaks out. He's always the toughest guy and everybody's like, you know, run for the hills here. It was more of the, he's had the quote unquote bad day that the Joker refers to. And you see it taking the toll on him, all the stuff that's happened to him. And he's finally gotten to that breaking point. So it was an interesting take because you never see Batman get to this point normally. And especially with the other things that happened in the same, you know, Barbara, Jason Todd getting killed, you know, the Joker doing all this stuff to him. And this was finally the last straw. And, you know, you, you finally see all that mental anguish and everything kind of wash over him. And he resigned himself to like, well, Joker didn't take my hand and I'm going to have to do what I got to do. And, you know, end of story. So it was interesting. Now he's just going to turn around and murder everybody and call it a day. <laughs> well, I guess then my question is to you at this point is, do you think that Batman did kill Joker by the end of this? Oh, definitely. Um, just for the <laughs> fact that um, I even looked it up because I was curious myself. I was like, well, did he or is it just whatever? And the ending with the fade to dark was supposed to represent the Joker's life, you know, s- escaping. And him fading into darkness. So he actually, he snaps the Joker's neck and the Joker dies while Batman is laughing. So he essentially becomes the Batman who laughs. Yeah, because it's an interesting point there because some of this stuff was carried over to, should we say, canon in the Batman universe, as in obviously not the Joker dying, but of course, uh, uh, Barbara being, you know, wheelchair bound and becoming Oracle, of course, and that carried over into canon from there. But yeah, uh, interesting, uh, interesting points there. And John, what did you make of our Dark Knight? So the Dark Knight in the beginning of the movie, so I, I, have seen it and I watched it twice in uh, preparation for this because the first time was just so, oh, like, let's uh, let's watch this movie. Sounds like fun. And then I kind of got more into the comic and I, I watched the movie again. And so now I'm splitting the movie into two parts, which is the first half hour and then the actual story. Uh, Batman in the first half hour just seems very standoffish, just seems very like. You know, if you want to work with me, you're going to do things my way. And if you don't want to do things my way, then, you know, hit the road, my way or the highway. And he he just seemed very like, I don't know. I know that it's sort of like a tough love kind of thing, but I felt that the way that he handled Barbara's like, I want to I want to go with you. I want to do this. I want to do this. And now, granted, Barbara was overexcitable. She was doing things that she shouldn't have been doing, but I think that Batman was a bit harsh. He didn't take the time to actually like say, hey, that's not going to work. You got to build up to it. He was basically just saying, you fucked up. Get away from me. This is it. We're done. And um, yeah, so I didn't like him in the beginning of the movie. And especially when he allowed for the sexual encounter between him and Barbara. Uh, And then after that, he was just sort of like, we'll talk later. I'm just going to like, let you hang. Cause I'm not, I, you know, I I have no desire to, 
to to talk about this with you, even though you're an, an emotional wreck, obviously, and you're saying like you don't, you know, of course, this is Barbara's character, but um, yeah. So in that first half hour, I was just sort of like, yeah, he's a dick. He's helping, you know, to save Barbara's life around every corner. He's getting angry at her. Okay, sure, fine. Then the story actually starts. Barbara gets shot. She loses the loose of uh, she loses the use of her legs, and then Batman suddenly becomes very like concerned, and you know, with you know, he he wants to you know be there to help, and he's like going and like attacking the Joker, or at least who he thought was the Joker in the very beginning, and um, I think that uh, Batman's flaws, as Keith and uh, Keith and and uh, Grace, not Grace, Ken, Keith and Ken were saying, um, were definitely shown more once the story actually started. Because, you know, you always see Batman as this, you know, like solid rock and he's just always angry and he's just like, okay, you know, I'm handling this, you know, very, very matter of factly. And if people die, then people die. Shit blows up, violence happens. Okay, great, wonderful. I don't care as long as the right thing gets done. Uh, You saw his flaws and you saw him. It was such a strange thing, such as because I've never seen this before in any other comic or movie where he sympathizes with the Joker and he tries to reason with the Joker. And he, you know, is sort of like and, and, you know, there was that scene where he was talking to Alfred saying like Joker. Like after all these years, I know virtually nothing about Joker and he was almost falling apart at the seams. He wasn't because clearly he's able to he knows how to handle those kinds of uh, emotional stresses. But, you know, he's looking at all these pictures of the Joker, which I thought was clever that they showed that image of Joker with the with the card. And it was like the first ever image of Joker in the comics. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's that's kind of cool. All right. Nice. Nice shout out there. Um. Yeah, like the flaws and and him saying, you know, he's my did he say my intellectual equal or whatever? Like I like I know as little about him as he knows about me. And then even Alfred stepped in and said, don't be so sure he doesn't know more about you than you know about him. And he was like, "Okay, (laughs) like, what are you talking about? So, yeah, he definitely he was faced with a lot of uh emotional you know like i i don't want to deal with this but i'm forced to so this is how it's going to come out and it was interesting when he went into the carnival and you know like they had that scene with the joker and then they went outside and he laughed at the joker's stupid joke about the flashlight it's like the only time you ever see batman laughing <laughs> and it was it was a big laugh scene and then I guess, uh, as Keith said, he snapped Joker's neck while they were laughing as it faded to black. Of course, in the comic, it didn't fade to black. It just showed the like it, you know, like went down to the puddle and it showed the raindrops. So I don't know if that was implied as well in the comics or the comic rather. Um, but yeah, Batman's character was interesting in this as as weak as the film was does show Batman in a in a different light than I've seen him in other things. So 
I, I liked watching his character go through that. Good stuff. And I, I will agree because I think, like, you know, to your point, John, this is a very different Batman compared to what we've usually seen. And I will say, you know, that credit to the source material, especially, you know, when it comes to Alan Moore and Brian Boland, because we know that Alan Moore is very is well known for deconstructing superheroes. We see this especially like in stuff like Watchmen, for example, and possibly even a little bit in V for Vendetta, but especially in Watchmen, where he subverts the whole concept of being a superhero and deconstructs that to where at the end of the day, they are just people. And I think that's what he does when it comes to, to this particular, to, to this version of Batman is the fact that, like you said, he is falling apart of the seams. And like what you guys were saying is he's very much reflecting on what has happened. And the fact that he almost is, should say, um, putting the olive branch in front of Joker saying, you know, we've done this dance for way too long. And, you know, like even Keith's point is somebody's going to die if we don't stop this now. And he's almost trying to reason with the most unreasonable man on the planet. And I think that's that's how far gone he, he is and how pushed he is, because he mentions the whole uh, the whole Kantian. You stare at the abyss and the abyss stares back at you. And that's exactly what he was trying to impart to Barbara as well. Because she's like, oh, I'm so excited, superheroing, yay, and everything else. And he's like, no, it's not, yay, it's not. And so he tries to almost ground her. I do agree. He is a little yeah. bit of an overbearing parent with her. But I think that's always been Batman's way for the most part, even with his other charges, whether it was Dick, whether it was Tim Drake. He's always been very much that guy. Because I think inside he very much cares but he feels like he can't wear his heart on his sleeve as much as he'd want to. One, maybe because it goes with the Batman persona and two, because like to him, this is his mission. And that's what it's all about. There's no place for sentiment to be for, for being sentimental. And what I think is curious is knowing that, knowing that Batman is a very much black and white kind of guy, there's no gray in between. The way they went about this, it really it, it, it so contrasts with what Batman is. One, you don't fool around with your best friend's daughter. You just don't. That's no. bat, the, the Batman I know and love would never do that. And that's why it was so out of character for him to do it that I think the Batman usually that would, you know, that we know might have just kind of pushed her off saying, you know, cool down there, girlfriend, you know, it's fantastic. Mm. You know, you're gorgeous, but I just, I don't, she would say mix business with pleasure, if you will. So plus it's the, you know, to even Ken's point, it's a mentor mentee relationship. And usually the teacher doesn't really sleep with the student. I don't think it's a, it's an age thing. I don't care about the age to be honest, because she's old enough and they're mm. both consenting adults, but Batman just wouldn't do that. And also the fact that when she's like calling him like you know, the hurt girlfriend, he's like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm driving. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's just not. But after that, yeah, the fact that he's almost trying to sympathize with the Joker, I think is an interesting point is that it's been such a long time and such a big thing. And ultimately, he's the one who snaps and ultimately almost proves Joker's point that you've gone thus far. You know, you've you've. Um, you know, put one of my, one of my uh, charges into a wheelchair. You almost drove my best friend crazy. I can't take it anymore, and I'm going to end you. And that's pretty much what, what happens. I will say Kevin Conroy has always did a fantastic, fantastic job. It, you know, his voice is just beautiful. And by and large, I think the, the character of Batman was decently written. I mean, from the half, from the half point onwards, it is Boland and Moore's words, so it works, and he's able to bring those to life. But the first half hour is like, 
Oh, you're you're just some kid. Stop doing that. Oh, let's sleep together. Fantastic. And I'm like, no, no, no. Especially, I mean, I don't want to go into graphic details here, but especially when he gropes her butt, I'm like, no, don't do that. Oh. Batman does not do that. But uh, other than that, aside, aside from my frustrations, I think I think was it was well done. Aside, if you cancelled the first half hour, it would have been a a, be a better movie, I say, I, I think. But I guess you couldn't have released it to theaters and it only been 45 minutes long. But whatever so let's get to our leading lady since we have talked about her a little bit here and there we have a voice who will be very familiar for all things dc animated and marvel as well i loved her as miss minutes in the loki tv show miss tara mm -hmm. strong of course as barbara gordon batgirl and by the end of this movie oracle so keith starting with you what did you make of babs uh, she was just irritating from the start I there was multiple points I actually fast forwarded in the beginning of the uh, movie just because she was so irritating and so predictable. You know, the minute he said, you know, Batman said, "Don't do something," she turns around and does it. Batman tells her not to chase after the 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 bad guy of the week. What does she do? She turns around, and chases after him. And then they start fighting and blah blah blah. I'm like, all right, cool. This is so predictable. And then the cut to the the day version of her. She's still having that struggles of separating her alter ego with her daytime persona so it's funny to watch her try to explain to her best friend that she's struggling with her you know person that she likes at yoga class or whatever the hell it was and i'm like oh god are you serious we're gonna do this like she's gonna fall for her you know batman like every other female character ever written in this you know series so it, it was very two-dimensional in terms of everything it kind of picked up a little bit when she finally did come to terms with you know the whole abyss after she beat the bad guy of the week to an inch of his life sort of like what dick grayson has done and you know tim drake and all the other robins <laughs> have done so it was very much a rinse and repeat time type of storyline the difference is she realized that if this were to happen again she probably wouldn't be able to come back from the the abyss or the void or whatever dark place you want to call it so she hung up her cape and cowl and i, I respected mm -hmm. that that was a almost like a sign of maturity she realizes that this is too much for her to handle like it looked good on paper but when i actually went to go do it it you know, it wore out really fast. She only said she was doing it for three years. So she's still relatively young into her crime fighting career, opposed to Batman, who'd been doing it for decades, theoretically, at this point. So that I did like. And then, you know, the stuff with her father was kind of short lived because it was only one or two scenes. And then the Joker pops up and shoots her right in the stomach, which, mm -hmm. by the way, if you get shot point blank, that bullet would have wound up in Commissioner Gordon's skull. He would have been dead, but that's a whole different detail. Yeah, good, good point. And yes, I will also have to, as a sidebar, say Paris, France. Really, guys? <laughs> really? I love it. That I was amazingly me. bad. You got to be yeah. kidding me. Oh, I guess you're not. <laughs> I like the I fact mean, that really. she calls it out too. She's like, R really? And Batman yeah. just looks her dead in the face, like, yeah. Like, what's the Is problem? Yeah. I don't get it. Paris, France, yeah. whatever. <laughs> but yeah, really bad name. I mean, Azzarello, seriously, but never mind. Um, and John, what did you make of Batgirl? So, <laughs> Batgirl, what I was, <laughs> what I was probably more intrigued about by 
than anything else was the fact that this was the same person who did the voice of Timmy Turner on Fairly Odd Parents. <laughs> and I I just I love the contrast of like, okay, here's this nerdy little boy who has, you know, ghost parents who the grant him wishes and stuff. And, you know, it's just like really snappy, like witty dialogue. And now she is this cartoon character, cartoon character granted, but with obvious immense sex appeal. And it's like, this is the same person, little boy, very sexy woman. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I can respect your ability to do that. Uh, now getting into the character. Um, the first half hour of the movie, I think, was, I mean, I'm not going to say it was necessary because it wasn't necessary. But in order to make uh, Barbara slash Batgirl a character, this first half hour of the movie was added to give her more depth. Because if it just started with where the comic starts, she would have virtually no role at all in the movie. It would just be... She's in the first, uh, whatever, few pages, she gets shot, and then she's pretty much never heard from again, uh, except for that scene with Batman and, you know, but whatever. Um, we give Tara Strong the opportunity to be Barbara Gordon. Uh, I did think, and as I had mentioned previously, when she was Batgirl, way too excitable. And it's like, okay, you are still in it for the thrill you haven't been pushed to the edge you know because you still want to just jump right in batman tells her stop doing that and it's like once twice and you do it again a third time and it's like okay batman has been right every single time and it took all those times to realize yeah maybe this isn't for me and that's when she stops the role of batgirl and gets you know shot in the stomach or whatever, and you know loses the the use of her legs. I, um, I think that well, obviously her character a- after she gets shot, she doesn't really have much of a character. It's it's just you know she's that's what drives the plot from the actual story. So I'm talking about this mostly from from what wasn't even in the original story. I think it's funny to have her scene with her best friend uh you know which they added for the movie and you know what fuck it i'm just gonna say it because everyone has been saying it's her best friend i'm just gonna say it it's her gay best friend okay fine it's her gay best friend and you know that element was added for the movie to give it i don't know i guess a little bit more realism uh a male figure that she can talk to who isn't going to be attracted to her uh that's you know i thought it was clever that they put it in like that um bit of a comedy because i like him he's like oh i thought the gay scene was was complicated but you know uh, barbara gordon's character um as i said stops being a character once the story actually starts and i know that there are some people who will say that i'm wrong for using this word and i am wrong for using this word but it almost seems as though she's the MacGuffin for the story. Technically, not a MacGuffin, if anyone happens to be listening and says, hey, you're using the word wrong. But she drives the story. After she gets shot, 
that's where all the action goes, you know, because Commissioner Gordon is there, Batman is there, like, you know, um, if not for that, there would not really be a story. It would just be, I don't, I don't even know, just Joker kidnapping Commissioner Gordon, and, you know, he seems to get in trouble sometimes. Uh, but yeah, that is my take on Barbara Gordon. Fair enough. And uh, Mr. Radner, what did you make of Batgirl? Well, the thing that I found interesting about how they did her in the movie, right, was um, first she, she's different than she's in the TV series. You know, I mean, she is obviously, you know, young and unexperienced and excitable, but she's not as as outwardly aggressive as she is, which I guess is probably a virtue of it, you know, trying to make the movie um, a little more, you know, heavy and, you know, going with the R rating and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting that, so in the comic, um, when Alan Moore was writing it and bringing it to, I think it was, I don't know if it was one of the producers or, or one of the DC, you know, executives or whatever, you know, he was saying something about how he wanted to get toward like the end of her career so that he could end end her as Batgirl. And he says, I think the way that I want to do that is I want to paralyze her. And the the DC exec, he thinks about it, in a, it for a bit and he goes, yeah, paralyze the bitch. <laughs> like that was the line. That's the line that he said to her, and said to him. And so it was interesting that he did that in a as a mechanism to end the character of back or her career as Batgirl. So now and that was in the comics. So now we get over to the movie where we actually get to see why she stopped being Batgirl because you don't get that in the comic. So. It was very interesting that they took or it seems like they took that conversation between the two of them when they were creating the comic and then decided to actually bring it into the film because it does actually have a point. However, I think the way they did it wasn't great because, you know, with being, you know, that they get in this romantic relationship that that really would never have happened. And that's why she stopped being Batgirl. It, it would have been better if it was if it was more, you know, like something else. You know, like something like, uh, you know, she was being overly aggressive and then she kills somebody, you know, and then and then Batman's like, that's it. You're done. You know, he goes, I we don't kill people. That's the one thing, you know, we're not going to do. We don't use guns. We don't kill people. You're not I'm not dealing with you anymore. You know, and then she was like, fine, I'm out. You know, and then, you know, who knows what she was doing that time. She was living a bit of her normal life. I thought it might have been nice to see her kind of go off on her own. And, you know, do like a Nightwing thing, but maybe be a little more aggressive in that sense. That might have been fun to see for a while. But um, it was interesting that they put that in. Now, I don't know if that's why they put that in the movie. Um, but it does. I do know that that's they had that bit of a discussion. So it would be interesting to know if there was an actual link to that. Um, but, you know, she she was. I mean, very much ex- like you, like you said, except for those thirty minutes in the beginning where they're trying to give a little bit of uh, plot development. She she was just a device after that. It was just a way, you know, to move the story along. And um, I mean, it did 
makes sense because basically Joker just went after two of the most important people in his life. You know, mm-hmm. and just because she's just because she stopped being Batgirl doesn't mean, you know, she wasn't still important to him. Um, so I mean it so in that sense it was kind of done well. I mean, you know, done as as well it was in the comic. And and I just thought the one thing that I always thought was interesting was so after Joker shoots her. And then he starts taking all the photos of her, strips mm. her, takes all the photos of her. So you didn't get a sense of much as of much as this uh, in the movie. But I always thought when I read the comic, I was like, did he go further than just taking pictures of her? Oh, she yes, he did. Scene. He raised See, that's her. Why, it's clear. Yep. Yeah, that's that was. Yeah, I was I was always like I was like, I, I think he did. And the thing that I thought was that was kind of compelling about that, at least while I was, you know, reading the comic and then, cause they didn't do it as graphically in the movie, you know, but they definitely did in the comic. I always thought, you know, you never really got the sense out of all the things that you saw of Joker in the comics that he was necessarily kind of like a sexual being. Mm. It seemed like he was almost above that. Like that kind of stuff bored him. Like he was more interested, like maybe some of the stuff with, with Harley, like he, you know, probably you know was with her a number of times just because she's so insane as he is that probably intrigued him to that point but you always got this sense that that was just something not that he felt it was beneath him but he just he had no interest in it it just it didn't you know so for him to go and do that was like i'm he's trying everything he can to do the worst he can to the people that mean most to uh you know to batman and there's even uh, there's even analysis analyses that I've heard of uh, of things that might have happened to Commissioner Gordon while uh, he was he was in uh, the Adventureland. Mm. So I was so like when I'm reading this, I was like, damn, I was like, Joker's just going all out. Like he's he's just not afraid to you know do anything. And uh, so that was it was just interesting that they would they would put all that stuff in. And, uh, you know, put her in that position, obviously. But, and you know, it was, it, it was good as it, she was good as it could have been, you know, given the material being that there was so little of it to begin with. Yeah, this, this is very true. I mean, I, I will go back to the point that I initially made at the top of this review about fridging and what have you. And, and actually, um, my, you know, Keith and I actually talked about this off air about, uh, women in comics being overly sexualized and objectified. And I think the problem with this character in this version and, and is also somewhat not as problematic, I think, or two words well, problematic in a different way when it comes to the, the graphic novel is the fact that I think the Batgirl is overly sexualized in this movie. Oh God, is that, she ever? Yeah. Yeah. And, and even Batman who ends up sleeping with is like, those criminals objectify you. I'm going to sleep with you anyway. But I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. that's why it goes totally against the fact because he's giving her all the point of, you know, all these boys and criminals are lusting over you because he's talking about uh, Paris, France being such a slime ball and like, hey, baby, I've got a present for you and all this kind of thing. And the fact that she's ogled constantly by these men in mean, Paris, France, very much as an example of the fact that, you know, she ha- she's, you know, this curvaceous, sexy woman that everybody lusts over. And it's so overly objectified. I mean, I guess this comes from the point of, um, of somebody who's a strong feminist and who's happy now to see that to a certain extent, 
female superheroes have gotten better or should we say are being written better. But the problem, I think, also with Alan Moore, kind of like with Frank Miller as well, he wasn't particularly good at writing female characters in the mm. sense that he would tend to sexualize them and objectify them. And that was a big problem of comics for many, many years. I mean, no surprise, you think of the costumes, the fact that these women with these pneumatic breasts and these very, should we say, uh, tight thigh, you know, should we say hips and everything else. And uh, it's, it, it's, it was par for the course. It was horrible. But uh, and I'm glad we're getting somewhat far away from that. But the problem with with Batgirl in this is she's constantly the victim of of, of being over sexualized from sleeping with Batman to um, Paris, to the encounters with Paris, France, to the fact of ultimately being raped by the Joker. And that's what it is. It makes her more of a victim than a strong woman. And that kind of saddens me, bearing in mind also that it's played by a woman whose last name is strong, that uh, <laughs> That you mean we see her be a bit of a badass when it comes to Paris, France and kicking his butt and almost beating and beating him within an inch of his life. But it's other than that, she's very much the victim. And there's very much, you know, I'm glad that at least we got the Oracle part of the end. It's like she's reinvented herself because she's super intelligent. And now she can be Oracle and be a fantastic person in the role of Oracle. But other than that, I was very upset with how that was written. Added to that. She, I suppose at this point, she's like 18 or 19, but she acts like a love, she acts like a love struck teenager. And that really got on my nerves of the fact of when she tells Batman, it was just sex. No, it wasn't just sex to you, Batgirl. It meant more to you than it did to him. So it's a very one-sided relationship. She's the one who's completely lusting and in love with Batman. Batman doesn't care. He realizes he's made a mistake somewhat, though he never admits it because Batman never admits he's wrong. But uh, it, that's the thing. She, she's like, oh, why don't you call me? What, you know, it's like it really is that kind of puppy love where the boyfriend doesn't call you and you're like, he's ghosting me. He's horrible. And so on. And I hated that because I'm like, this is not Batgirl. She is a badass. Why are you ruining this fantastic female character? So I was very sad when it came to that. And just the fact that she's like, oh, my God, he's fantastic and everything else. And to Keith's point, every other woman in the Batman world falls in love with Batman. I get it. You know, the, the tall, dark and handsome. But still, this was just so out of character for her. You know, she's a badass. She doesn't need to be literally lusting after Batman. And so I think the big problem was that Tara Strong did a fantastic job, as she always does. I mean, no surprise. Like I said, she gets all the gigs because she's got a beautiful voice. But she was seriously underserved when it came to the writing. So I was very, very upset with that. So I guess uh, let's round off our characters. Just like the quintessential voice of Batman, we have the quintessential voice of the Clown Prince of Crime, Mr. Mark Hamill as Red Hood Joker. So, John, kicking off with you, what did you make of the Clown Prince of Crime? Oh, boy. <laughs> so uh, in a movie that is, you know, subpar, it's enjoyable, but it's not the best Batman movie. This Joker, Mark Hamill, he just like, I don't even know. Like, how do I describe it? Because in this movie, he is the most psychotic that you have ever seen him. I think anyway, I, I haven't seen a lot of the Batman movies. Most psychotic that you've seen him. But in the same movie, he is finally shown as a sympathetic character. Like these two just completely like spectrum ends 
He's insane. He shoots the commissioner's daughter in the stomach and rapes her, paralyzes her. I, I mean, you know, I think he thinks he paralyzed her for life. Eventually, she got the use of her legs back. Um, but then at the same time, they're showing his, you know, oh, I, I tried to get work and, you know, he's about to have a baby and his, you know, he's like doing everything that he possibly can to 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 pay for, you know, what, what the baby's needs and all that. And he goes starts with a very small like, I don't even know if I want to do this, but OK, fine, I guess, you know, I'll break the law one night. And then I never have to think about it again. And I'll be able to do all this great stuff. And, uh, and then obviously, you know, his his wife dies and therefore the baby also dies. And he, even in that moment, said, oh, well, there's no reason for me to be doing this anymore. So he wasn't just like he wasn't pushed over to the over the edge. He was going to just go and sulk for the rest of his life and the 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 bad guys whoever those mobsters they're like no no one healthy gets out of this job and you know so he's like okay i guess puts on the red hood and funny enough i noticed this this uh this difference between the movie and the comic in the comic he told batman back off or i'll jump and then he jumped in the movie. He like tripped over. What did he like trip over his cape or something or some, something that happened? But yeah, he actually didn't mean to jump. He fell trying to get away from Batman. And, uh, you know, it, it's a nice little backstory. It's it's one of several backstories of the Joker. Uh, I like this one because it's one where he doesn't actually put makeup on his face that's his real face i've seen too many where he actually makes up his face to look like a joker but other than that he can take it off and look like a regular person i don't care for those you know because that's not how he's supposed to be uh but yeah the mark hamill like i i I had no idea Mark Hamill could do that with his voice after watching him in Star Wars. And he's just like this very soft spoken, like, I will not fight you, father. You know, like, oh, my God, you can't be my father. That's impossible. And then all of a sudden he's like, I'm the Joker. <laughs> Go loony. And like, oh, my God, what an enjoyable character this guy was to watch. And, you know, it seems to be the consensus that in this weak Batman movie, Mark Hamill did the best Joker. Like many people have said, he is the Joker. He's the one who does the Joker's voice, plays the role, does all that stuff that is absolutely necessary. Um, but what I liked, I, I, I mean, psychotic, psychotic. Like in most incarnations, you see that he's actually like willing to give people clues He's willing to say, like, okay, follow this. And, you know, they're diabolical, of course. And they're like, only Batman could figure them out. But, you know, in this one, he wasn't even doing that. He was just sort of like, yeah, we have your commissioner and these three weird midget people uh, torturing him on a roller coaster. Save him if you can. Whatever. <laughs> um, you know, I... 
I thought, and and then at the end of the movie, I thought it was kind of interesting that he was just sort of like, "I got a joke for you." No, it's far too late to, you know, get me, you know, like have have any kind of uh, redemption for me. I've done way too much horrible damage and destruction. Uh, but how about a stupid joke? And then they both laugh, and then I guess Batman cracks his neck, and uh, yeah. My that's my take on the Joker. Some sauce and uh, Ken, you know, as you didn't get didn't get to you uh, give us your answer when it came to. Do you think that Batman kills the Joker? And what did you make of uh, of the Joker in this? See, as to whether so, first getting to the point about him possibly killing the Joker, um, I like to think that he did. I've so I. I did a little bit of research on this and there's, there's like, like main, three main school of thoughts. The first one is yes, he killed him. He, you know, he broke his neck during that. That's why at least in the comic, you hear them laughing, laughing, laughing. And then the Joker's laugh just stops. So they said, so they think that that's, that's one. The, and then pursuant to that, the joke that he tells at the end. Okay. About, there's two inmates from insane asylum escaping from the asylum. They're climbing up onto the roof. They can jump over onto another rooftop. The first guy, the first insane uh, inpatient jumps and makes it. And he's like, come on, you can make it. And he goes, no, no, I don't want to do that. I can't, I can't, I'm not going to do it. And he goes, look, I'll take out a flashlight. I'll turn the light on and you can walk over the beam and then you can come over. And then the uh, guy that didn't want to go, because what the hell do you think? I'm crazy. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, when I'm halfway across, you're going to turn the light off. <laughs> so it was it was an interesting parallel because. It's uh, it's almost a parable. The, the inmate that jumped off the roof and made it is Batman. The inmate that didn't want to jump is Joker. They're both insane. They've both been driven to do something no sane human would do. But Batman was the one that was willing to take the leap to try to save himself and people. And then once he took that leap and put himself in danger, he was fully willing to say, hey, look, I'll do this to help you. And then the and then the other guy who is, you know, symbolically supposed to be the Joker doesn't want to leave the insane asylum. He's afraid to. Hmm. So, so, but that point about the flashlight in the last few uh, frames of the comic, when the police cars are coming up and the camera, quote unquote camera in the, in the comic panels starts panning down to the ground, the lights from the car are forming a beam. And then when Joker's laughter stops, the beam, the beam goes out. And that's the last panel of the comic. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, he could have probably killed him. And then th- there was this other one that uh, I heard about was that he didn't snap his neck he, when he when they were having their final fight. And uh, he like punches or kicks Joker or something like that. Joker had just previously tried to inject him with a poison needle. And they said when he hits Joker, there's this one scene where Joker's going to stab him and Batman does one of those Kung Fu things where he's not even looking at him. He just reaches out and grabs his hand to stop the knife. 
And you can see that while he's doing that, he's looking at the palm of his hand. So one theory was that he found he found Joker's needle and he was checking to make sure he didn't get injected and then grabbed it. And then he didn't he wasn't strangling him. Uh, you could almost see in the last scene he might have his hands on his chest. So he he got him in the chest. And then that was it. So, mm. you know, those are you know some theories about how he was killed. Then there's a whole bunch of things of people saying, well, he couldn't have killed him because the Joker was in other stories after that. You know, but then there were other jokers too. So he could, he, so he could have, um, you know, so I, I mean, I would like to think, I think it just makes the story more interesting. I think if he hadn't killed him, what's really the point. Mm. And also the whole main thing of it with Batman saying, you know, I, I want to help you, you know, we got to stop doing this. I want to help you. I want to rehabilitate you. And then when, Joker goes through the thing of and and part of that reason, too, I think, was Batman was trying to absolve himself in his mind that if it got to that point where one of them had to kill each other and I tried to save you, I did my best to save you and you refused me and I end up killing you, then my no kill rule, I didn't really violate it because I tried to save you and you came at me anyway. And and that's it. Um, So that that was always why i kind of thought he probably did kill him but uh you know some some of the creators and stuff i think that i think alan moore specifically said that he didn't but uh that's why he also said he didn't really ended up not really liking the story after years because he was like it really didn't there was nothing to it so now what happens joker goes back to arkham and then the whole thing starts all over again and there was no resolution um so you know that's my take on that part of as to whether actually he killed him or not, you know, according to the writers, he didn't, but it's way much more fun and impactful to see that he did. Um, and uh, I mean, just as far as, you know, Mark Hamill uh, in his characterization, I, he's, he's always been incredible. I think the idea that this was, you know, an R rated movie gave him that ability, as John said, just to go so over the top with it. And mm-hmm. it's so interesting to see, Mark Hamill performed that kind of character because he is such a sweetheart. It's ridiculous. Cause I, cause I've met him before. So I actually, I met him at Comic-Con, uh, I don't know, I think like 2011 or something like that. And, you know, he was there, you know, I, I did a photo, a photo op with him and I get in there. They only give you like 10 seconds. It's like, go in, smile at the camera, Take the photo. Okay, get out. We got the next guy to go. So I get in there and he comes in, he sees me coming and he's like, he's like, hi, how are you? And I was like, great. I go, you know, thank you very much, Mr. Hamill. It's really nice to meet you. You know, can I shake your hand for the photo? And he goes, oh, just call me Mark. And I was like, wow, that's ridiculous. And the other thing that you always have to notice when you look at Mark Hamill taking posed photos with other people, he's a pointer. He's always going to point. He's either going to point at the person he's with or he's going to point at the camera or he's going to point with two fingers. He's just every almost every picture. He's a pointer. And it's it's just so great that that's how he is. But then he can do that kind of that kind of voice acting is just a tribute to, to his ability. And Kevin Conroy always used to say, I don't know, Kevin Conroy used to say about Mark Hamill that 
He goes, a lot of times actors will get the best performances by playing off each other. And he would tell Kevin Conroy, he goes, you're so good at playing that role that you give me so much to work with. It makes both of our, you know, uh, uh, performances so much more impactful. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really so great about this is when you know that and then you hear how he does this. It, I mean, he he was incredible. And then when I see the other, you know, uh, Batman movies, the other animated Batman movies where Mark Hamill is not the Joker, it definitely feels like something's missing. I mean, maybe there was one voice actor who did a decent job. But other than that, they just they they can't they can't really do it. You know, the way he can capture that that sense of, you know, mania that he can definitely do. Oh, yeah, this is very true. And in fact, we will be uh, discussing a different Joker next month, actually, when we talk about Under the Red Hood. And and I very much agree with you, Ken. I mean, uh, Keith and I were actually reminiscing, I believe it was last week, about uh, the 90s TV flash show where, of course, Mark played the trickster. And he did a fabulous job in that, as hokey and as cheesy as it was. I think already there you could see that, uh, you know, there was a little bit of the Joker in the the way he played the tricks, the two, both in the 90s Flash uh, TV show. And also he then reprised the role in the uh, CW, The Flash, for a brief, brief spell. But uh, but yeah, Mark is an incredibly talented actor. I definitely would agree. And I'm glad to hear that he's a great guy in person, too. And speaking of you, Keith. Oh, exactly. And the pointer. Exactly. Now we know that he's a pointer. And uh, speaking actually of you, Keith, what did you make of Joker in this one? Um, I loved that he was the polarizing character of the movie. You know, granted, he does some spectacularly terrible crap. Don't get me wrong. But every time Mark Hamill Joker was on screen, he was the focal point. You couldn't turn away. He just he grabbed you immediately. Granted, he, you know, would go on for these crazy explanations as to, you know, why things happen. And, you know, especially when he was singing, that was just like, I was like, what is happening? I was so confused, but I couldn't look away. It was just great. I I don't know how else to say it. If nobody's ever watched it, just watch it because he sings as the Joker in this movie. (laughs) It's it's the greatest scene ever. (laughs) I thought it was, I'm like, oh, he's only going to do one line. No, he rips in the song. And I was like, what is happening here? But yeah, and the fact that he goes on, you know, these explanations, like when you first see him torturing Gordon on the merry-go-round of insanity or whatever, the tunnel of craziness, whatever you want to call it, he, you know, poses these questions to the commissioner. And then when the commissioner finally breaks and throws the book at the Joker, the Batman statue pops up and he's like, see? It's the Batman. We're literally the same character, but yet you're throwing me in jail and he's okay. You know, he was showing him his fault at that logic because one guy can beat the shit out of somebody and be fine. Other dude beats the shit out of somebody. He's going to jail. They're both assaulting somebody. It's just a matter of whom's assaulting whom. So I I liked that he pointed out to the commissioner that, you know, no matter how good of a guy you think you are and the Batman is, he's essentially just me, but, you know, with better clothing and you know accessories i've always said that hamill is the best joker everybody says it's heath ledger but you know if you've watched this movie you can see the extent of his acting range he goes from borderline sane when he's talking to the uh park owner which by the way why does the park owner not know who the fuck the joker is (laughs) yeah he's like a mascot 
Right. You would have seen, he would have been on the news because the guy's clearly been out of jail for a little period, you know, a couple of days or whatever the case may be. And he's been around for a couple of years. So I don't understand how this idiot did not know who the Joker was. Cinemasins. Yeah, Cinemasins, <laughs> 100%. So, you know, you see him walk on, he's talking to him like very, you know, calm, collected, like you or I, and then turns around and kills him, like not even blinking an eye. It's just like he was tying his shoes, but he doesn't break character. He doesn't. His tone doesn't change. His mannerism doesn't change. It's just very matter of fact, like, okay, thanks for doing business and continue on. So I like that you see different aspects of the Joker in this because normally you just see him in the TV shows when Mark Hamill was playing him on the animated series where he'd hatch his harebrained scheme and somehow magically the Batman would figure it out and, you know, when in reality, he's showing people that he is much smarter than they, than they give him credit for. Um, the weird thing that I, I kind of, you know, take away from some of this is, you know, when they're showing him his normal life and he's got the pregnant wife and the kid and he's struggling as a joker, but yet he's got a degree in chemistry and he's like, I'm going to go tell jokes, but I can't make money. <laughs> Dude, get a day job like everybody else in the world, like every starving actor ever known to man. You have a day job, and then you have your night job. So the fact that he went to such an extreme to like, oh, okay, I'm going to break the law. And this was his one bad day, just like he made a reference to Batman saying he had one bad day. Mm. And they both did, but it's the path that they took. One took the path of law, and the other took the path of chaos. So as everybody, even they've mentioned to each other over the years, they're flip side of the same coin. You know, Hugo Strange from Arkham Asylum has made reference to Batman saying that he and Joker have a lot of similarities, which is true. And the Joker even points this out. And the fact that he makes reference to it in the joke and the Batman gets it. And that's why he starts laughing, hmm. which takes a second, because if you're you're like, this is a really dumb joke. And then you go back and think about it and you're like, holy shit, like that's a really cerebral kind of a joke. And that's why Batman starts laughing because he realizes that. Yeah, he put out his hand, a.k.a. that piece of wood, and mm. he turned him down, and now he's falling to his death. And literally a couple seconds later, he potentially kills him, knocks him out, does something to him. But either way, he kind of predicted his own fate. He I want very much did. Go ahead, John. I, I, I just want to say, um, so you had mentioned there's an argument between Heath Ledger and Mark Hamill as who's the best Joker. I would mm-hmm. say that it's 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 almost apples and oranges because Heath Ledger was on-screen Joker and Mark Hamill did like a cartoon Joker voice. So I feel like, you know, which is the best cartoon Joker, which is the best live-action Joker? It's it's definitely like it's I, I it's two different kinds of Jokers, I would say. So that's why do that's you have to all- separate them? Uh, because just be jokers and batmans why is it got to be all like animated in real life and i don't have to separate them i just feel like i'm just saying i just feel like it is it is two separate categories that do you prefer the joker's voice in the killing joke or do you prefer the joker in uh what is it the, the dark knight and you know so yeah that's that's all i have to say about it 
No, well, that's totally fair. I mean, that's, that's definitely a great debate. And I think I will have to get with Keith at some point. And uh, when we think about doing, because we are planning, dear listeners, on doing a some retrospectives. Keith and I have talked about this. So there is some some awesomeness, some great stuff planned for 2023. Uh, since we've had Keith on board, you know, and, and I'm so glad that he is now, you know, my podcasting partner in crime. There's some great ideas coming and we're looking forward to sharing them, of course, with you guys next year. But when it comes to to the the task at hand, this particular this version of Joker. I mean, I've always been a big fan of uh, of Mark Hamill's Joker. Heck, I grew up with Batman the animated series. I still love it to this day. It's absolutely fantastic, and I do definitely think he is the quintessential voice of this character. And what I think is interesting is, yes, you know, to the point that you guys have all made, there is what I think Alan Moore was trying to do, and what, of course, Sam Liu and Brian Azzarello did with this is they're very much showing there's a method to the madness that even though he seems completely far gone, does these incredibly extreme things like paralyze a woman, rape her, and then take her father and try to, to turn him into a madman himself. As extreme as these acts are, there is a method to the madness, i.e. making the point of you have one bad day and that can literally change you forever. And if we do go with the theory that Batman ultimately kills Joker, it's proven Joker's point that it took it took, uh, well, it took, I mean, they're, they're big things, you know, the, uh, the, um, paral- the, the make- paralyzing and raping uh, his, uh, his charge, almost driving his best friend to madness to bring Batman to kill him. The Joker's pretty much proven his point that that is Batman's bad day and that, his, and that in his death, he's very much, he's, he is, he won dying. Kind of, it almost is a similar point to uh, The Dark Knight Returns, where Joker pretty much kills himself. By literally, should we say, breaking his own neck, he's almost he, he's his mission is almost to try and either make Batman a better hero or to prove that Batman is not so different from him. And what I think is great about this particular version is just that is that on one side, it's like I had this incredibly traumatic experience on this one day, i.e., my my wife died, I lost my child, and then I went through with this bank robbery gone not bank robbery pardon me this this robbery gone bust and ended up becoming the joker and that changed me completely you've had this and this is what happens to you and add to that i did like the flashbacks with the red hood i mean this is one of many origin stories as john was saying in fact whenever i talk to some friends of mine who maybe have not read as many comics or have seen it or or such they will consider the origin story that heath ledger tells in the dark knight as being Joker's origin story, but the thing is, he keeps changing it. And I love the fact that Alan Moore wrote the line of, if I could choose my origin story, it would be multiple choice. Because maybe Mm. even the Joker himself does not remember what his origin story is. So for all we know, when we see those flashbacks, it could be one of the ways that Joker remembers his past. So for all we know, we're literally going down the trip down memory lane or a skewed version of memory lane of what the Joker remembers or he likes to remember. So so there's no definitive origin story to the Joker, which I think is what adds to the mystique and the beauty of the character. And I hope they never give us a definitive origin story because that's the beauty of the Joker. Nobody knows who he really is and nobody knows where he started. But for this version, it's almost like when he talks to Batman at the end of this film, He's remembering that version of I used to be a good person, but now I'm so far gone. I almost deserve to be killed and I do not deserve forgiveness. So it could almost play into the fact of he was kind of a sad sack and he um, always apologizing and feeling super bad for himself before he became the Joker. 
And that's why he's almost finding an excuse for Batman to kill him and also prove his point that it takes one bad day to, to change you. And Mark Hamill is just, he's divine. Just listening to the man's voice as the joke, it's, mm. it's fabulous. I mean, I'm not the biggest Star Wars fan, but hearing him as the Joker, it's, it's just music to my ears. Because if they did an audio book or a drama of, with Mark Hamill, I could listen to it for days on end. So uh, he definitely chose the, the, the scenery. And I think one could say he, he very much elevates this rather mediocre film. As, as I'd mentioned even to Keith, he's the Idris Elba in this particular situation to Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, I will continue to say it's a horrible movie, but Idris Elba elevates it. I think Mark Hamill ele- elevates it, elevates this particular film with his performance. So that's Absolutely, what I've got to say. Yes. That's exactly it. I mean, it takes it just like it takes one bad day. It takes one good actor to elevate a mediocre film. And that's what what Mark does with this one. So so I, fabulous. I, I almost I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Go for I, go for go for John. No, no, no. Go uh, for it. So I almost feel like, um, you know, it, it's it's almost like a comparison of like Judge Doom in um, in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because he's like, you know, we're watching a cartoon. But, you know, in the cartoon world, it's not a cartoon, but it almost feels like, you know, his act. He's like, as it turns out at the end of the movie, he's really a tune and he's just evil and crazy and bonkers. And that's that's like the only possible explanation because he's really a tune. I, I don't know. That just kind of popped into my head right now. So. Oh, no, but that's uh, I, that, that's definitely a great point. But yes, sir. Uh... You know, going back to what I was saying, yes, Mark elevates this. And recently, you know, Keith and I reviewed um, to trial of the Incredible Hulk. And he's very much the John Reese davies of this film. John Reese davies elevates that movie as well. In a very eh, cheesy movie, cheesy movie, John Reese davies elevated that. And Mark Hamill did this. So chef's kiss when it comes to, to the Joker, for sure. So, uh, guys, anything else on this movie before we get to ratings? I thought I thought it was well done. I, I thought it was a well done movie. Um, I haven't seen a lot of Batman movies. This was like maybe, I don't know, one of four cartoon movies that I've seen. And, you know, because I don't have a very long attention span, this was good. It was an hour and 15 minutes. And, you know, I, 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 I enjoyed the pacing, even though it was a little bit disorienting with the different stories happening. Uh, I thought it was well done. I didn't think it was anything brilliant, but I thought it was well done. Fair enough, then. All righty. Well, then let's get to ratings then, gentlemen. So, Ken, starting with you, what do you give uh, a Batman the Killing Joke out of 10? Um, I would give it. Oh, that's a tough question because I'm so conflicted. It's just because, like, you asked me, what do you give the comic? Well, that's. I would border on giving that a 10. That's, you know, it's one of the best, you know, uh, Batman things I've ever read. Maybe, you know, 9, 10. Um, this, I can't rate it as high just because, not not even just because of the first half hour thing, but I think that there's a lot of stuff in that in that graphic novel that you can't really translate well into animation. Um, I think the... I think the the most striking aspect would be the artwork. You can't do that kind of artwork animated. You know, I mean, it was almost some of it was almost like realistic, like almost photorealistic stuff. 
Um, they did manage to get the Joker transformation face exactly right. So that's probably the most iconic uh, image out of that whole thing was just that one. I mean, the amount of Joker shirts I've seen with that, you know, image on it, especially back, you know, like in the eighties and early nineties, I'm like, like, what is it? Everybody who listens to heavy metal owns one of these shirts. Like that was, that was kind of, so it was, so I guess I would probably, I would probably put it at a, at about a seven. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of waver on that a little bit. I guess I'd probably have to watch it all the way through a few more times to really get, but I definitely, you know, thought it was great. There are definitely Batman animated movies that are better than that. But uh, I, yeah, I would probably go with seven. That's definitely a fair grade. And speaking of fair graders, Professor Keith, a.k.a. our Russian judge, what do you give this? Uh, why, why do I got to be the Russian judge? <laughs> I could be the Russian judge. That's fine. No, no, it, it's fine because I'm always, you know, the the voice of, you know, discontent with most of these movies. So that's <laughs> the, true. The, the, the voice of Russian, if you would. Yes, I do the Russian well, but uh, all joking aside, uh, I'm torn. Um, I'm kind of with Ken. You know, the book goes in one direction. The movie goes in another direction. Could I watch it again? Probably not. Could I watch Mark Hamill sing as the Joker? A hundred percent. But the movie as a whole was definitely, it was a grind. I've only been able to watch it twice, I want to say. And even this last time to rewatch it for tonight's episode, I started and stopped it like a dozen times because I just wanted to do literally anything else. Um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with my favorite number four, just because. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not that bad. I'll give it a pass. I'll give it a five, just because you know, for people who've oh. never watched it, it's a, it's a good watch one time. The cast definitely saves it. Mark Hamill is amazing in it, so. I'm, I can't give it much higher just because the rewatchability, it, it's a struggle. You get it once and then you're like, eh. the comic book is a million times better. Personally, it definitely conveys a lot more of the the point better that they kind of water down for the movie for some odd reason, considering it's an R, but it is what it is. Hmm. Well, that, that's totally fair. And so I guess then Batman, the killing joke, you're repeating the year. You're going to be back in class. Uh, you're not going to get out of the summer off this time. Sorry, not even the Christmas holidays off. So there you go. And, uh, None of it. <laughs> Mr. Seymour, what do you give this? Sure. Well, yeah, I, I, I got to say I'm on the same boat as, as Ken and Keith here because, um, yes, the, the comic was far more visually striking. Like, I, I, I noticed that that was one of the first things I noticed. I was like, so the movie was animated like a regular cartoon movie. The comic looked so like glamorous glorious like excellent artwork um i wished that the movie could have looked like it but i feel like if it was possible it would have, it would have been a very difficult thing to pull off uh so i don't fault them for that uh, that's just something that i noticed um if it had started where the comic started and was just like a 45 minute run through maybe an hour special on TV. I don't know. Uh, I I would have given it a much higher grade. But as a whole, I'd probably say, so the first half hour, I would give out oh, four. And I would say that for 
the the last 45 minutes, which was the actual story, I'd probably give it like seven and a half, maybe eight. Like on a, if if I'm in a good mood, uh, it, it's funny that Ken mentioned. Uh, I'm sorry, Keith mentioned um, that you know you know he watched it once and then he watched it again and had to stop it twelve times. The same exact thing happened with me today. I I watched it previously. I watched it all the way through and I was like, okay, yeah, cool. But that was like a couple of weeks ago, so I'm like, all right, I have to I got to watch it again just to you know be be fresh for the conversation. Today I had it on. I started it at. I was at work, so I started it at, I want to say noon, and I was done with it by five o'clock. So, you know, for, for an hour long, an hour and 15 minute movie, that's really saying something. Uh, yeah, it's not the easiest thing to watch all in one sitting, even though it is so short. So, you know, like I said, it's like a four and an eight. So we'll split the difference there. We'll call it a six. Well, it looks like uh, you and I are in sync, John, because I'm going to let Batman the Killing Joke have it, its uh, Christmas or Hanukkah holidays off. So uh, they get to then have to repeat the year. So it's a six out of 10 for me. It gets a passing grade, especially because of Mark Hamill. And I will also save the late, great Kevin Conroy. Tara Strong did a good job, but she was seriously underserved when it came to the writing. So it gets a passing grade. I'm probably never going to watch it again. The problem is it doesn't have rewatchable value. I think that that's the big problem with this is the blu-ray i bought is still there standing on the shelf and we're there collecting dust i might use it as a doorstop i don't know but uh it's probably not going to be watched for a long time unless my niece when she's old enough says i want to watch a batman movie okay let's watch this crappy movie together my dear and so we'll give sit a, back and watch it give a whole new definition to collectible as it's collecting dust Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> That's, I'm sure. I think the Joker would have. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, I guess eventually I might I might show it to my niece when she's old enough to to uh, to get into the nerdy stuff for sure. But yeah, so it's a mm. six out of ten for me. So let's then get to recommendations. A Keith for those who might have gotten some enjoyment from this particular movie. What do you think, folks, should check out? What would you like to recommend? Professional help. Oh my God. <laughs> you had nice. that. You had that plan from the beginning. No, I don't. You know me. I know I don't script anything. Unlike some people I know. The uh, man's no, off the cuff. I, I, yeah. Right. That is completely <laughs> off the cuff. Uh, I would recommend the comic book. All kidding aside, if you can pick up the graphic novel, you know, read it online digitally just to get the true sense of what they were trying to convey, I recommend it wholeheartedly. I, you know, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, in terms of movies to watch, I, I prefer, um, geez, most of the other actual Batman movies, even Batman Beyond the movie, where they brought the Joker back because he was, you know, quote unquote dead. Um, the Mask of the Phantom, that's another good one that has a, a good cast with, you know, both those movies show each the joker in a strong light or batman in a strong light so i would take either one of those well those are great recommendations indeed added to the professional help too i should add and uh, <laughs> john did you have anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners well sure if so if you like this movie you know it, it's it's not a terrible movie but i would say that um like the 1989 tim burton batman movie superior to this one, Jack Nicholson is the Joker. Wonderful, like great performance. Super campy, of course, but 
you know, so he's not like violent like that. But I, I like the 1989 Batman movie. Um, and, <laughs> and, and you know, some people are going to shoot me in the head for this, but the, the Adam West series, you know, even <laughs> campier, like 500 times campier. But was it Cesar Ramirez who played uh, who played the Joker? Cesar Romero. Romero. Cesar Romero. Excuse me. Yeah. Romero. Like who would know, not shave I, his mustache? Who would not shave his mustache he, for the part? Not yes. his <laughs> and and I, you know, it's just so much fun to watch those like those old Batman things from like the 60s and then like the late 80s just to see what people have done with Batman over the decades. It's just so much fun. So, you know, Adam West, Batman. Jack Nicholson as the Joker in 1989 Batman and then Batman Returns. You know, Joker is not in that one, but who doesn't love Batman Returns? So those are my recommendations. Fantastic. And uh, Ken, did you have anything you'd like to recommend? All right. So from the comic standpoint, um, uh, you know, obviously another Alan Moore Watchmen. Um, fantastic movie uh, and fantastic comic series. So both of those um, definitely worthwhile. Um, and n- there is one uh, comic book series that uh, that I, I collected. It was only about two or three, and they were graphic novels. And it was called Martial Law. And it wasn't but spelled like Military Martial, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, Martial Law. And so the whole idea kind of a little bit of a similar idea to Watchmen. And the basic idea of it is there, um, it's like a a 1960s something and, you know, war in, you know, Vietnam and, you know, uh, you know, Southeast Asia is breaking out. And so the government starts, you know, creating all these superheroes. Right. So so the superheroes go to fight this war. They come back and then a lot of them become just the most terrible criminals ever because, you know, they're because they're criminals, but they're also super powered. So what they then do is another military government organization does the same thing to another guy. And it's his job to hunt them down. All right. And. Every, and each of each of the graphic novels pokes fun at a specific uh, superhero group. So the first one makes fun of the Justice League. So, you know, Superman and Wonder Woman and, you know, like all that kind of thing. And they do it. Same thing. It's very, very graphic. It's very, very uh, shocking. It does. I'm, I'm not even sure if it's done by Alan Moore, but it has that it has that kind of feel in the writing to it. But I don't think he did it. And then the second one makes fun of like uh, more the Marvel superheroes like Fantastic Four and, you know, like stuff like that. They have uh, th- there's this one fantastic scene where he has to go into this basically super powered insane asylum where they have all these you know, ex superheroes locked up and he's going into this one area and there's basically Mr. Fantastic, but he's older and broken down. So he doesn't really have control of his stretching powers anymore. 
So like he's sitting there and one of his arms is in a sling, but half of his arm is kind of like hanging down to the floor. <laughs> and and he'll and like this the, sounds the amazing, law, by the way. It's yeah, incredible. I'll, I'll and the reason he's like yeah. martial law says something to him. And then he'll answer him back and he'll be like, oh, yes, I think that's definitely true. And then he just turns to the side and goes, don't you think so, honey? <laughs> but his wife has been dead for like 15 years. Oh. You know, so it's so that's like like th this twist to it. And then what they do with Human Torch is, is I mean, it's ridiculous. It's so uh, worth a read. Um, on the movie side, um, going with something like this, I mean, definitely... Uh, as far as animated movies go, a lot of the Justice League animated movies are really, really good. Like Flashpoint Paradox is really great. Um, the uh, the um, I'm trying to think a lot of the the Young Justice series was pretty good. Um, and I'm and I'm trying to remember if it was Flashpoint Paradox where there is Superman, but because he gets his power from the sun, as soon as uh, the government found out where he was. They took him and they locked him underground. It is Flashpoint. Yes, that is Flashpoint. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They locked him underground, and he's just like this little withered because he's never been in the sun. Uh, that was that was just mind blowing. So I mean, those would be a bunch of recommendations I give. Yeah, he has agoraphobia well, because he's been locked away since literally childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Flashpoint is, is a great, great story. And I definitely agree with you, Ken, when it comes to martial law. I've actually read that. And you're not too far off when it comes to the um, the Alan Moore stuff, because it has, is actually written by two British gents who are Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill. So, uh, okay. so folks, definitely check that out indeed. I believe it actually originally came out with Epic Comics, and now you can find it through Dark Horse Comics. So, uh, of okay. course, on the independent side. So that definitely rein, you know, reinvigorates the fact that you were telling me off air that you're the indie comic kind of guy so yeah it is a it is a dark horse comics pro uh, property and i agree with you what i will add when it comes to movies i'm going to take it way back to 1928 with a silent black and white film by expressionist german expressionist paul lenny and that movie is the man who laughs and yeah. that was, of course, a short it was adapted from a short story by victor hugo so if you're into the kind of dark stuff and really see where I think the Joker got his origin, the inspiration for the artist who created him. Check out The Man Who Laughs. And even though you're not into silent movies and yes, it's from 1928, but it is it will hook you. It is just so, so good when it comes to these expression, expressionist movies from the, the 20s. So I'm going to go with The Man Who Laughs. So I guess those are our recommendations, folks. And of course, dear listeners, if you want to be like the awesome John and Ken and share your thoughts on the movies we discuss here, either in person, taking the plunge or in writing, you can do so by shooting us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Once again, that magical email is happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Feel free to show your support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness, or follow us on Twitter, while it still stands, where you can find us as High Darkness Pod. Also, I guess when it comes to you guys, John, starting with you, where can our fine listeners find you on the interwebs? Okay, well, starting with the Facebook, you can find me on Facebook, John Seymour, J-O-N space S-E-Y-M-O-U-R. I am uh, playing a guitar, wearing an Iron Maiden shirt, making a crazy face. Uh, that's my profile because there's 8 million John Seymours out there. Um, going to promote MSV podcast. On December 27th, which is in a few short days, I will be recording 
the Who Frame Roger Rabbit podcast with uh, Mr. Ken Radner over here and uh, and another guest uh, by the name of Will Sepinero. Uh, looking very forward to that. And that was why I was so excited to make the Judge Doom reference earlier. Um, let's see. Greg says, MSV, look out for MSV podcast presents the fake and the whimsy, which is coming soon. Uh, Greg is looking to get that up by New Year's Eve. And of course, don't miss the Sign of the Four reunion, the Ronnie James Dio themed band playing January 28th at the Village Pub in Lindenhurst, New York, which is in Long Island. And of course, Mad Tea Party, my main band, my main project is playing Defiant in Pearl River, New York on February 17th. And uh, both of those shows start at 8 p.m. So not to be missed if you can help it. Well, fantastic stuff indeed. And uh, Ken, where can folks find you? I'm more of a solitary person, so I pretty much stick to Facebook. So it's Ken Radner, K-E-N-R-A-D-N-E-R. And my uh, my wallpaper there is a nice little cartoon of uh, the late Michelle Nichols as Uhura. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's basically where I'm at. If you like, you, you know, send me a personal message saying that you heard about me on the podcast and, you know, we can talk. Awesome stuff. And folks, definitely reach out to, uh, to Ken. He's a great, great guy to talk to for sure. And Mr. Keith, where can folks find you? Uh, I'd like to tell you they could find me on MSV podcast, but they've haven't invited me back in, I don't know, six or eight months. So I'm going to say they can <laughs> find me in happiness and darkness with you every week. Uh, we're, we're afraid that you're going to overshadow us yeah you know what that's not too hard yeah <laughs> awesome awesome source well and when it comes to me folks for you country music lovers i can be found hosting the radio show whiskey and cigarettes where we play today's country traditional country and everything else in between more info about that visit our website that's whiskey and cigarettes show.com Podcast-wise, uh, of course, if you are fans of Best Picture-winning movies, myself, Zan Sprouse, and Rachel Friend can be found on Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast, where we are reviewing said Best Picture winners in chronological order. And speaking of Greg Vorob, he will be joining us this coming week to review, of course, Schindler's List. And finally, if superhero TV shows are your speed, especially Titans and Doom Patrol, at least currently, myself and Charles Skaggs can be find on, found on Titan Talk, the Titans podcast, where we finished up wrapping up the first six episodes of season four of Titans and are now currently attacking season four of Doom Patrol. So that is Titan Talk, the Titans podcast. And speaking of things to come on this show, next time we'll be taking on, in 2023, the 2022 Jeff Waymister film, Green Lantern, Beware My Power. So, uh, John and Ken, I'm sure I speak for, for Keith as well when I say thank you so much for joining us today. It was a blast having you both on, and uh, we look forward to having you back soon. Excellent. Thanks thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Awesome. And uh, Keith, any quick thoughts on our next movie before, before we sign off? And uh, this being our last episode of 2022, uh, any parting words? No, I'm, I'm looking forward to the new Green Lantern. I, I've sat through this once before and I'm looking forward to reviewing it. Fantastic. Well, folks, thanks as always for this show and supporting us. We will see you next time in 2023 with Green Lantern, Beware My Power. Until then, stay super, happy holidays, ciao.
my people. You can change your gloom for a rubber room and injections twice a day. Just go loony like an acid casualty or a loony or a preacher on TV. <laughs> when the human race wears an anxious face, when the bomb hangs overhead, when your kid turns blue. It won't worry you You can smile and nod instead When you're me Then you just don't give a fig Man so gooey And the universe so big If you hurt inside, get certified And if life should treat you bad